If I told you we're spending the next hour on Public Law 111-148, you might be inclined to tune out. But if I say we're going to talk Obamacare, you'll probably either start cheering or screaming. Without a doubt, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act is the single most controversial piece of public policy to be enacted in many, many years. Today, though, we're going to hopefully take out some of the hype and talk about the realities of the Affordable Care Act. That's where we're headed today on Town Hall Ohio. This is Town Hall Ohio, home to interesting people, engaging issues, and enlightening stories. Town Hall Ohio is a production of the Ohio Farm Bureau Federation, working to forge a partnership between farmers and consumers, and is supported by Nationwide. Nationwide is on your side. Now, here's Town Hall Ohio host, Joe Corneli. If all goes according to plan, by the end of March, some 7 million Americans will be signed up for health insurance under the Affordable Care Act. Proponents say that's good for the insured, the health profession, taxpayers, our nation as a whole. On the other hand, critics use terms such as socialized medicine to describe the program, and clearly its rollout has not inspired a great deal of confidence. As I said about preparing today's show, it became quite clear just how complex the issue is. I was practically paralyzed trying to figure out what angles to cover, and I also quickly concluded that it's tough to find experts who aren't driven by politics. Now, everyone likes a good argument now and then, but that's not what we're after this morning. Like it or not, the Affordable Care Act is the law, and now we have to deal with it as patients, providers, insurers, employers, and taxpayers. So to help answer some uh, an admittedly small number of the questions, we have a panel of guests with us today. Dr. Stephen Gabby is the Chief Executive Officer of Ohio State University's Medical Center and its Senior Vice President for Health Sciences. Ben Southerly is a business reporter for the Columbus Dispatch and the author of a very comprehensive series of articles about the ACA. Dan Rapp is Senior Director of Health Services Development for Town uh, for Town Hall, Ohio, of course, for the Ohio Farm Bureau Federation. Gentlemen, uh, we welcome you all to uh, to the program. Dr. Gabby, we'll start with you. Am I right? Uh, this is complex, and uh, it, it, not only will we not only answer all the questions today, we, we probably don't know all the questions yet, do we? Well, this is still to be rolled out, so we still have a lot of questions to be answered. And I think one of the biggest questions is with, the uh, opportunity for, as you said, uh, nearly six, seven million individuals to obtain insurance now through the exchanges, will that improve their health? Will they actually take advantage of the access to health care that they've not had before? And we could say the same for those individuals who will now have access through Medicaid coverage as well. Uh, ben, let, let's let's turn to you to maybe help us set the stage. Uh, back up years ago when President Obama was first elected, and this is one of his major legislative uh, uh, priorities, it became uh, it became the law of the land. And I, and I'm asking you because you're a reporter and you're you're going to have an unbiased uh, opinion of this. But but what's the general premise? Hel- help us understand why it was felt we needed this whole new health care system or health insurance system. Sure. Well. There were a lot of goals to the law, one being uh, that there were a lot of folks who didn't have health care coverage, and so the thinking was this was going to be a way to expand coverage so that millions of Americans uh, would have a more, I guess, controlled and a a more proactive way of of 
seeing to their health. Um, there also were a lot of reforms to the insurance industry that were included in the act. And there was just a general sense that, hey, you know, maybe the incentives in the healthcare system aren't quite where they need to be. Maybe there needs to be a little more emphasis on on the value of the healthcare that's provided more so than just the number of procedures that are provided. Dan, what's what's why does Farm Bureau have a have a dog in this hunt? Well, I'd say Farm Bureau has a dog in this hunt because we have a lot of members who are trying to figure out how to navigate these reforms within uh, not only as a as a member who's insured, maybe a farmer out there, uh, maybe as an employer, and they're trying to deal with the healthcare needs of their employees and also deal with the overall rising cost of health care. And, and that's one of the themes we want to work in through the course of the show today. But what you said in a nutshell is whether or not you are an individual who's going to get insurance now because where you couldn't get it affordably before, this has implications for everybody, correct? Not just actual participants in, in, the, in the program. Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. You're going to be impacted somewhere along the way by the Affordable Care Act. What I've read, uh, and and uh, let me let me throw out this uh, disclaimer at the beginning. I, I I tried to use statistics that I thought I got from reliable sources as opposed to uh, biased sources. So Ben, I'll, as, as the journalist in the bunch, I'll leave it to you to jump on me if you if you hear me say something <laughs> that uh, is more uh, more opinion than fact. But I mentioned uh, the goal is to get about seven million in. Uh, into the program and uh, about 3 million, I think was the number I should have said for by the end of March. We're about two thirds of the way there. Uh, how, how are we doing, Ben, in, in getting people into the program? Well, um, uh, as you noted earlier in the program, Joe, the, the initial rollout of the um, health insurance marketplaces, and there's one in each state, Ohio's is operated by the federal government. Uh, the rollout had a lot of glitches, uh, a lot of consternation about uh, how things went initially. Uh, things are going more smoothly now. Um, seems like when you look at the numbers, the government releases numbers on a monthly basis, and they seem to be catching up. I think um, the last number I saw for Ohio was that we were at about 40,000 people who had signed up just in Ohio, and that was about 45% of the goal for the first three months. So that would have been through the end of December. So we're making up ground, but I'm not quite where the government thought we'd be at this point. Your thoughts, Dr. Gabby? Well, I agree that we had some stumbling at the beginning, but things, things are improving and more individuals are taking advantage of the marketplaces, as Ben pointed out. Uh, it appears, and this is some analysis I saw recently, that when you look at the opportunities folks have, whether they subscribe to a bronze through a platinum plan, the bronze is the least expensive and covers 60% of care and the individual has to cover the other 40%. More folks are opting for silver plans, so a little bit more coverage, a little bit less personal payment. Uh, that's a concern, of course, to the providers, to the physicians, to the hospitals, because the more left for the individual to cover, the more concern there is that those fees won't get paid to the providers in the hospital. So that's something yet yet we don't understand. And somewhere I think there's a fine balance in the amount that is left uh, for that insured as an incentive to be healthy and take some personal responsibility and not have that uh, need to access the system as much. One of the issues uh, heading into this was uh, not just the math of how many 
sign up for health care under the program, but but who those people are. Dr. Gabby, uh, one of the concerns was that we, we, we'd get a lot of old sick people signing up and not a lot of young healthy people. What, what are we seeing so far? Well, that's, that's an important point. It was anticipated that of those who signed up, I believe the estimate was that about 30% really needed to be healthy young people. Why? So they could balance the cost of caring for the people who signed up because they were unable to get insurance in the past because they had a pre-existing condition. And of course, now they're eligible for care. So if they have cancer or diabetes or heart disease, they can get insurance. And there's not a cap to the amount of care they get in terms of dollars. Uh, I don't think we're at the 30% by any means. Um, there's some thought that maybe that number wasn't as important as was first believed, um, but I think we still have a ways to go to get those healthy young people involved. Uh, they may be willing to pay a penalty for not signing up, a relatively small penalty in this first year, and I'd be interested to hear what my fellow panelists have to say about that. Well, um one important consideration here is at this point we're kind of, um, I guess, not Monday morning quarterbacking, but doing a little um, consideration before we know all the facts because the thinking is a lot of young people um, may not sign up uh, for coverage until the very last minute, which is March around March 31st. So uh, that's next month, and a lot of those uh, uh, younger folks aren't showing up yet. So it's it's maybe too soon to say whether we've got the right mix of people to make sure that risk um, is spread out well. Yeah, and I think that the youngest uh, members that are out there looking at this right now are they're looking at the insurance that they used to have um, where they're young, they're healthy, so they were willing to take on maybe a little more of their risk. And the newer plans that are coming out now seem to be quite a bit more expensive than uh, what they were, what they had in the past, which is a little bit of a disincentive for the younger ones to sign up right now. Right. I think one of the other um, opportunities they have is to be covered by their folks, by their parents. So now with the with the Affordable Care Act, they can be covered up to age 26. And I know with our our children, we have four; they're older now. But when they were in those eight, that age group, it was a challenge for us uh, uh, for us to purchase individual policies for them. Now they be able to be covered under our insurance. So maybe some young folks will benefit from that as well. Dan, uh, a quick question for you. We've only got about a minute before we have to go to, uh, well, actually, we've got a little bit of time here. But um, Dr. Gabby mentioned the the opportunity to buy, buy the bronze, silver, gold, or platinum policy. Now, I, I don't expect you to go through point by point each one of the benefits, but, but help our listeners understand uh, kind of the range of services that that, that are available from, from the low-end bronze to the high-end platinum that, that someone who's looking to buy insurance might be having. What, what are some of the things that will make the major differentiations? Well, primarily for those uh, four metal classifications, that relates to an actuarial value of that plan um, to that individual. As we mentioned before, bronze covering about 60% of the costs in that plan um, as you move up, you go to 70% and 80% and 90%. Um, 90% being the uh, platinum and the most expensive and so forth. So, so it's not the specific treatments or diseases that will be covered. It's how much your share is. Yeah. It's a little more of your personal responsibility within that plan, what you're going to cover. 
So, for example, uh, in a bronze plan for a, for a family of, uh, of uh, three, uh, the bronze, they'd have a $12,000 deductible, and, and their, their premium would be about $360 a month. If they went up to the gold, they'd pay $474 a month, but their deductible would be, as a family, $2,000. So that's really where the difference is. And, and another, real quickly, another consideration here, too, is another thing that makes it more complex is depending on what your income is, you might be getting some, you know, um, assistance from the government. Uh, so whether or not folks will actually have to pay that retail tag, that, that uh, you know, depends on their income. Give us a rough idea, Ben. I mean, do you have to be uh, extremely poor to get an incentive? Or, I, I mean, I think I saw somewhere where, you know, you could have a family of four making $90,000 and still. That's right. It's a little over, yeah, a little over 90000 for a family of four. It's four times the federal poverty level. So it's really targeted at um, the middle class. If you're, if you're very poor, the chances are that you're qualifying for Medicaid. If you're very rich, of course, the thinking is you, you're, you can afford the coverage you're in the middle, um, then there's kind of a, a case. In some cases, you could qualify for a, a tax credit, which will help cover um, the, you know, the cost of your insurance. And, or uh, if you're below 250% of the federal poverty level, then you're looking at even getting some cost-sharing subsidies, which really lowers the cost. We'll be back to talk more about the Affordable Care Act with Stephen Gabby from Ohio State, Ben Southerly from the Columbus Dispatch, and Dan Rapp from the Ohio Farm Bureau right after this. Healthcare ought to be guaranteed. It's about our lives, not some middleman's greed. And if we all get together and organize, we can have a new system. Get rid of those guys. Yep, we'll have universal coverage. Healthcare for people, not for profit. Why, pretty soon we'll all be feeling so good we'll think we died and went to Canada. Welcome back to Town Hall, Ohio, where we are discussing the Affordable Care Act with Dr. Stephen Gabby, CEO of Ohio State's Medical Center, Ben Southerly, business reporter who specializes in health issues for the Columbus Dispatch, Dan Rapp, Senior Director of Health Services Development with the Ohio Farm Bureau Federation. Ben, uh, real quickly on this individual mandate, we described the policies that people uh, have the option to buy. Real quick, who has to buy? Well, um, everybody, (laughs) (laughs) pretty much everybody, unless you're uh, an undocumented immigrant, a member of an uh, Indian tribe, or you're in prison, uh, you're pretty much have to have coverage. And of course, a lot of people already have coverage through their employer. A lot of people have coverage through Medicaid. There's that small sliver of people, a few in Ohio, a few hundred thousand people who buy their coverage directly from health insurers. Um, already. And starting in 2014, they have to have coverage. So uh, basically, if they don't have coverage, then come next year when the IRS checks on them, they'll penalize them. Yeah, Dr. Gabby, you mentioned the penalty. Uh, describe, if, if not the dollars and cents, at least the concept. Well, it's, it's a penalty that starts off uh, this first year at a few hundred dollars and then goes up to a multiple of that and then finally a multiple of that. So in the, in the early stages, it's not uh, onerous if you don't sign up for health care, but it's going to become a more significant penalty going forward. And the idea is to uh, pretty much force people to make the choice to buy the health care. I mean, that's, that's what the 
the premises, correct? Exactly. The idea being that all of us who have insurance have been paying for the care of the uninsured. Uh, Our premiums have been higher because when folks come to the emergency department, uh, they'll get care. They have to get care. That's the way our system works. Uh, This way, hopefully, they'll get preventive services so they don't have to come to the emergency department. And if they do, their disease or their problem will be a lot easier to treat and they don't have to be, <clears throat> excuse me, hospitalized. The, uh, I guess maybe the signature moment for much of this so far was the opening of the website where Americans were supposed to be able to sign up. Uh, it was not one of our nation's finer moments. Uh, if, if you're a proponent of Obamacare, uh, you were extremely frustrated by the technical glitches. If you were an opponent of it, you reveled in the fact that this was a disaster fee. Uh, ben, tell us what happened and uh, on this on the rollout of the website, and is it getting better? Sure. Well, I'm not an IT person, but basically the way I understand Apparently the people that <laughs> <laughs> My bad. My, the, my color's showing there. The way, the, the way I understand it is um, there was certain definitely an issue of capacity. Uh, there was a pretty tremendous response from the public. And uh, when October 1st, when after midnight, uh, people started trying to get on and uh, the website was quickly overwhelmed. And uh, a lot of fixes have been made since then. Um, it seemed like toward the end of November, beginning of December, the website healthcare.gov seemed to get its legs under it and now seems to be running pretty smoothly. Dan, part of uh, what I think was was the issue, uh, right or wrong, the, the people spearheading in this in Washington seemed to think that the states were going to take more ownership, and we ended up with, what, only 14 states, Ohio not among them, uh, having their own uh, websites. So that leaves 36 states on that federal site. Was, was that part of it, uh, maybe not anticipating states not setting up their own systems? Yeah, I think maybe that uh, had a little bit to do with it. And and some of the states, too, um, have had some of their own struggles in trying to put their get their state exchanges together and out there. So not every state exchange has, has gone extremely well either. And some states promoted the opportunity widely. I think Oregon was one, California, and others didn't. So the the budgets they had to do that were, were limited in some cases, and so folks didn't know as much about the opportunity as they might have. Mm-hmm. Is the health care exchange the only place to buy insurance, Dan? No. Uh, most of the carriers that have put qualified health plans on the uh, federal exchange, speaking particularly about Ohio here right now, uh, also have online opportunities uh, for members to go directly to the carrier or the public to go directly to the carrier to get qualified health plans from them. And we still have um, agents, licensed professionals out there in the field that can help um, individuals make those decisions, determine what their their best health coverage options are. So it's not the only place to go get a qualified health plan. Is this good or bad? I mean, uh, if, if, if everybody had to go to the website, that would, that would I think, boost the, uh, the participation through that. Uh, on the flip side, do we as consumers have more customer choice because we're not limited solely to a website? Well, my concern driving all of them that way is is their 
own knowledge and understanding of, of the health insurance issues that they need to be concerned about, and they really do need a, a qualified, trusted advisor to help them pick the right kind of plan that manages their risk. Real quick, Ben, we got 30 seconds, so just give me a quick description, then we'll follow up on it after the break. What's the employer mandate? Well, uh, basically, it's a requirement for those companies that have at least 50 full-time workers or the equivalent of that uh, to provide health insurance. And like individuals who don't um, you know, have coverage, if employers don't provide that coverage, they're penalized. Sounds pretty simple, but I'm guessing really not so much. We'll follow <laughs> up on the employer mandate and uh, how it's impacting health insurance for all of us. Our guests, Ben Southerly from the Columbus Dispatch, Dan Rapp of the Ohio Farm Bureau, Dr. Stephen Gabby of Ohio State. We'll be back after this. My doctor, cause my arm wouldn't work. He told me first to call some government clerk, Obamacare. Let it treat you if you dare. Obamacare. We welcome you back to Town Hall, Ohio, where we are discussing the Affordable Care Act. In the studio with me, Dan Rapp of the Ohio Farm Bureau, Ben Southerly of the Columbus Dispatch, and Dr. Stephen Gabby, who heads up Ohio State University's Medical Center. Ben gave us a quick description before the break, Steve, about uh, the the employer mandate. Uh, in, in essence, if you've got 50 employees, you have to insure them or pay a price. And you said that price for businesses will be substantial. I believe it's $3,000 per employee. So if you look at a large em- employer, that, that can add up a lot to a lot very quickly. Uh, Now that penalty has been delayed. It's been put off by about a year. So that gives employers a little bit more time to get things organized. Dan, you work, uh, well, of course, here at Farm Bureau, our our company's an employer, uh, but you work with a lot of farmers and business people in Ohio who also are employers. I'm guessing this part of the law maybe got a little bit of their attention. It definitely got a little bit of their attention, and and depending on the the size of the employer and how they're structured, it's pretty complex. You need, uh, you know, a good uh, tax accountant and a discussion with your lawyer considering how your business sets up. You may have a trucking company, a farm, another entity that are all part of the same uh, family business, and you may have to count all of those employees together even though they're different entities, to get up to that 50, which may qualify you for having to provide health insurance, among many of the other questions. There is uh, a, a related, more familiar uh, national health plan. Uh, well, actually, it's it's a combination national and state, and it's Medicaid. Uh, Dr. Gabby, help us understand the relationship between the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid. Well, originally it was thought that uh, in a law well as opening the opportunity for insurance coverage, all states would have uh, Medicaid expansion as part of the Affordable Care Act. And then when the Supreme Court ruled that the individual mandate was okay, they said really the Medicaid expansion needed to be an option for each state to determine. Would each state move ahead with Medicaid expansion? About half of them have. And, and Ohio is a, among the states that, that did expand it. Uh, ben, as you look at the implications for enrollment in Medicaid, uh, what's the implementation of the Affordable Care Act done to the number of people that are now in Medicaid? Well, um, so a couple of things are going to be happening. Uh, one is 
there are going to be about 275,000 people in Ohio who were not eligible for Medicaid before and now will be eligible for Medicaid. So, and like Dr. Gabby was saying earlier, that's going to ha potentially have some implications for reducing the need to maybe shift costs. But people, basically, we have all been paying for people who are uninsured. And so presumably there will be fewer uninsured because of the Medicaid expansion. There's also what is called the woodwork effect. Because of that individual mandate where people have to have insurance, maybe there's just somebody who is just, you know, walking along, doing without health coverage, and now they have to have coverage. And, and so there are going to be people who were already eligible before the expansion who come out of the woodwork. We are talking about the Affordable Care Act. Uh, our panel today includes Dr. Stephen Gabby of Ohio State University, Ben Southerly, who you just heard from. He's a business reporter for the Columbus Dispatch, specializes in health business. Dan Rapp of the Ohio Farm Bureau. He is our Senior Director of Health Services Development. Uh, let's, let's turn to um, one of the, uh, the parts of this whole issue that's gotten a lot of attention, mostly political, to be honest, but, uh, but there have been some actual ramifications of it. If you like your health insurance, you can keep your health insurance. Now, I don't know if President Obama has a speechwriter to blame that one on or not. <laughs> I'm going to guess he's wished he had never said it. Ben, there, uh, it, it was flat wrong. I, millions of people lost insurance, correct? Right. It was, um, it was basically a, a simple statement that really did not imply to, to such a complex part of the insurance market, which is the part of the insurance market where people buy their own coverage. And those plans change on a regular basis anyway. And um, uh, basically, it what, just wasn't real prudent to tell people that their coverage wasn't going to change because it, it obviously did. A lot of people started getting notices that um, their coverage was being canceled because it wasn't going to meet the Affordable Care Act starting this year. Dan, help us understand that a little bit more, that uh, people were buying policies they liked, but those policies were no longer compliant. Ben started us down there. Correct. And, and in terms of keeping the coverage you had, as long as you had it in place prior to March 23rd, 2010, that was considered to be a grandfathered plan if you hadn't made any disqualifying changes to that plan. One of the things that our members do a lot of as they're shopping the different health plans is in adjusting for the increased cost of premium, they may take on a higher deductible. Well, jumping that deductible up likely disqualified that plan from being grandfathered. So when we got to this point of the year, that plan had to go and you had to move to a qualified health plan. We will be back to talk more about the Affordable Care Act and its implications for newly insured, formerly insured, insurers, employers, the whole long list of us, including taxpayers, to help us understand a little bit more of what's going on. Our guests are Dan Rapp of the Ohio Farm Bureau, Ben Southerly of the Columbus Dispatch, and Dr. Stephen Gabby from Ohio State University. Welcome you back to Town Hall, Ohio, where we are talking about the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. 
helping us understand it uh, a little bit more. Dan Rapp of the Ohio Farm Bureau, Ben Southerly, a health reporter for the Columbus Dispatch, and Dr. Stephen Gabby, who is the Senior Vice President of Health Sciences and CEO of Ohio State University's Medical Center. Uh, another term uh, that we need to define, Dr. Gabby, and explain and talk about the implications, the narrowing of networks. It's one of the consequences of what we're going through. What is that? What's it mean to us? Well, in an effort to control costs, uh, insurers are limiting where people can go for health care. And you may not understand that when you buy an insurance product. You may assume that you can continue to go to the same doctor or the same hospital, but that may not be possible. So if I ask you the question, what do the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, Seattle Children's Hospital, Cedars-Sinai, Mayo Clinic have in common, you'd say, well, I think they're all pretty good medical systems, pretty good hospitals. Well, they are, but another thing they have in common is they're excluded from large insurers being able to send patients to them anymore. So, for example, Seattle Children's Hospital, I worked was at the University of Washington Medical Center, a great children's hospital, most of the insurance plans in Washington don't cover that hospital because it's, it's expensive. Academic medical centers are 20 to 40% more expensive than other community centers because of our teaching and research missions. And we've got to do better to control our costs. But patients may find out that they can't come to us. For example, can you imagine buying an insurance product and having them tell you, oh, by the way, uh, you can't go to the James Cancer Hospital anymore. You know that care you've been getting for your breast cancer? Sorry, you have to go somewhere else. That is a real challenge today and something that we've got to figure out. You, you take us to another part of this. I, I, I invited you gentlemen here as panelists because I knew I was going to get some, some apolitical assessment of the situation. But there are a variety of controversial pieces of this that I would like all of you to react to. Uh, uh, so I, I don't get... To, I'm limited in who I can choose to be a part of my, my medical providing community. Uh, there have been complaints from uh, uh, portions of the Christian community about the, uh, the women's health aspects of this. Um, the fact that we'd get to, we don't get to necessarily keep insurance that we liked before. Ben, do you, I guess my question is, do you think all of these unintended consequences uh, are, are a surprise to the people who came up with this plan in the first place? Were, were they expecting all of these problems that, that weren't addressed, it seems? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, this was, this was passed by a Democrat Congress. So, I mean, there were, I mean, there were going to be certain issues like, you know, the women's health issues that, I'm sure people knew there was going to be a fight somewhere along the line uh, involving those things. However, there are still so many nuances uh, of this law four years after it was passed that were still kind of coming across that um, have led to some controversy. I mean, you mentioned the one with uh, President Obama's, if you like your health plan, you can keep your health plan. I don't think that was really anticipated, you know, several years ago. I wish this had been more incremental. I mean, instead of trying to eat the whole apple, I wish we had taken a more defined bite of the apple and focused on areas, for example, pre-existing conditions, caps on health care, Medicaid expansion, that had a more predictable outcome. That's my biggest concern. Let, let me throw this one out. None of you are political experts, but I think you're all politically savvy. 
What about the issue and and and, and Stevenson? You've got the most credentials after your name. I'll start with you <laughs> on this one. But but what about the, uh, the 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 issue of of the president's constitutional authority to make changes to this plan, seemingly on the fly? That he's saying, okay, well, we fouled this up. I, I'm just going to through executive order. Uh, make some changes to hopefully make things better. Any any thoughts on that? Well, I think it's a fix-up. I think, you know, they're trying to correct the problems that have been created, uh, and there will be more. And uh, it doesn't uh, lend itself to bipartisan support for what is one of the most important um, needs in our in our country, and that is better health care for everyone. Yeah, I think if, if the political environment wasn't as contentious as it is today in trying to do anything related to this law, then less of that kind of action would be necessary. I think it's a little more of a result of lawmakers not being able to work out some of the differences in the bill. Well, we will be back. Uh, we've got five more minutes, so uh, I'm sure there's maybe one or two questions we haven't answered yet. We'll try to get those uh, responded to by our panelists on the Affordable Care Act today. Dr. Stephen Gabby, who heads up health sciences at Ohio State, Ben Southerly, who writes on the subject matter for the Columbus Dispatch, and Dan Rapp, who works with Farm Bureau members in the health arena. We'll be back in just a few moments with more of Town Hall Ohio. You got a case, a real bad case, government ration. We are back on Town Hall, Ohio, as uh, we're going to wrap up a quick hour on the Affordable Care Act and uh, probably have created more questions than we've answered, but uh, that was not our intent. Helping us analyze the ACA, Ben Southerly, business reporter for the Columbus Dispatch, Dan Rapp of the Ohio Farm Bureau, who directs health services, and Dr. Stephen Gabby, who heads up um, the medical center and uh, health sciences for The Ohio State University. All of this that's going on, all of the controversy, all of the changes to the system, uh, are we headed down a path where at the end of this, because of the Affordable Care Act, we're going to be healthier as a community at, at a more affordable cost? We, we hope so, but it's going to be a long and a difficult and tortuous journey. We are seeing CMS, the Center for Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and they have been doing this for a number of years, paying us as hospitals, as, med- as health systems, the value of the services we provide or penalizing if we don't. That's where I think the benefit will be in the future. More insurers will adopt this approach, not how many of something do you do, as Ben mentioned, but how well do you do it? And if you do it well, we'll pay you more. And if you don't, we're going to pay you less and we're going to direct folks to go to other providers. One example of that is uh, there was a program that rolled out uh, recently where um, if Hospitals readmitted too many patients soon after they were discharged. I think it's within a month after they uh, are discharged. Medicare penalizes them for that if they're above a certain level. Obviously, there are going to be some readmissions, but if there are too many, then there's a penalty. And that kind of gets at that whole 
issue that Dr. Gabby's talking about. But on the day we recorded this, I just read on the front page of the Columbus Dispatch, the hospitals have figured out a way around that system. <laughs> well, well, that is, uh, I, I guess, one way to look at it. But I, I think kind of back to the Affordable Care Act and, and its purpose, you, you know, there, there's a widespread acknowledgement that healthcare is too expensive in our country and that we have to move away from just doing procedures to finding ways to avoid procedures, finding ways to provide the kind of health care that provides a lot of bang for the buck. And, you know, a lot of us don't know about the Affordable Care Act is that it did put in place some programs to try to innovate a little bit and come up with new models for making health care more affordable. Dan, uh, one of the things that we have done for many, many years for Ohio Farm Bureau members who typically don't have access to employer-provided health insurance is to help group them together and find them individual health plans that that meet their family's needs, be they small business people or farmers, of course. Uh, uh, The Affordable Care Act has changed all that. It's changed your job dramatically. What are some of the things that that organizations like ours are having to do now to adjust to this whole new reality in health care? Well, I think many are trying to help their members find the affordable part of the Affordable Care Act, and we're just not quite there yet. You know, it does deal with good prevention. Um, it does have guaranteed issue, which is something that uh, was a problem for some members who just couldn't qualify to get health insurance because of medical conditions that they had. So in their case, it's it's been a real benefit. For many others who have taken care of themselves, have been very healthy through their lives, um, the only result they've seen to this point in time, I guess, is just the ex- the additional premium expense cost that's come along with it. So we just try to help them find some of the solutions that are available to them in the marketplace. So do we have a, a deadline here, Ben, Steve, Dan, when, when we know who's right, when, uh, when this was either the greatest evil move towards socialism in America ever or uh, gets us to the utopian uh, where everybody has affordable health care and they stay healthy cheaply for the rest of their lives? When, when are we going to know who was right? Dr. Gabby, <laughs> will you and I be here when that's answered? Well, I'm not sure we will. It's going to be decades. I mean, look at Medicare. I think most people would say that Medicare has been a very successful program. It, it has been a very expensive program, but it has been successful. Will we look back at this as this, in the same way we do Medicare? I'm not sure. This probably won't be answered before your deadline for tonight's paper, <laughs> tomorrow morning's paper. Well, and you know what? The thing about it is for one person it might have been the right thing. And for another person, maybe not. And, and I think the, my takeaway from this whole deal is I think everybody, whether you're a business, whether you're an individual, you have to do your homework and see how does this affect me. And you have to really engage it instead of just maybe going by what your neighbor tells you. We want to thank our guests for joining us today, a very complicated subject. I hope, hopefully we, uh, we uh, at least helped you understand a little bit more or at least discovered the questions you need to ask. My guest today discussing the Affordable Care Act, Dan Rapp of the Ohio Farm Bureau, Ben Southerly of the Columbus Dispatch, Dr. Stephen Gabby, who, by the way, will be back uh, on an upcoming edition of the show with Jack Fisher to talk more about medical issues. Dr. Gabby from Ohio State, we thank you all for joining us on Town Hall Ohio. Town Hall Ohio is a project of the Ohio Farm Bureau Federation and is brought to you with the support of Nationwide. Nationwide is on your side. Join us again next week for Town Hall Ohio.